Welcome to the Simpleton Podcast, the podcast that gives you the deepest insights you've ever heard. Wow. Welcome, Laura Heeman. Thank you, Clark Massey. All right. Our amazing listeners, give us feedback. We're going to go over that. We've got a conversation about history, apologetics, and framing. Then we're going to do the Israel-Palestine conflict from 40,000 feet as a conflict of civilization and how you're going to handle Thanksgiving dinner. (laughs) Then we have Laura reviewing the internet as a thing, and we're going to talk about using candor versus bishop speak. How are you doing, Laura Heeman? Doing good, Clark Massey. Let's go into listener feedback. Okay, so... Uh, last time or a couple times ago, you asked the question whether we should um, cover more of our training manual. And overwhelmingly, <laughs> our listeners said yes. Um, a few a few people contacted us and said that they would like more of our training and ideas on evangelization. So look for more of that in the future. Um, we also got the feedback to avoid culture war. Um that particularly, if you cover the culture war, you get sucked into a vortex and lose your mind. And that sounded correct to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A- and meaning and purpose and all that. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, and uh, that, that, that was uh, well laid out in a delightful email from a listener in Colorado. So thank you. Um, and what else? Um, the term theodramas from Von Balthasar was pointed out by several people. And thank you, Father Jimmy, for sending me a picture of your Von Balthasar mug um, in reference to that. And besides Father Jimmy, we had another priest give us feedback. I just think that's, I think when you're running a podcast, getting priests sending you feedback is kind of cool. Yeah, that is cool. Yeah. Good. Um, All right. Well, I think related to this feedback of wanting to go more into the manual, I want to talk about this framing idea again. Yeah. And this is, this is manual material. It is, right? Yeah. And it came up recently because I was talking about history and understanding history with someone, and I realized that you cannot help someone understand history by answering their questions about it, mm-hmm. you know, because yeah. there's so much of a like mindset that you've been given about how to view history that like, for ex- just think of this, like say uh, the question came up of like, hey, there's what the church stands for, and then there's what the church actually did in history. How do you reconcile mm-hmm. these, right? And that conversation can go no good place. Yeah. You know, when when just done as Q&A, mm-hmm. meaning like if you say, hey, what about the bad popes or the crusades yeah. or the Spanish Inquisition or the mm-hmm. pedophilia crisis, right? It's like, or, you know, even genocide in the Old Testament. It's like, even if you have all the best Catholic answers, answers to this, all the mm-hmm. best apologetic answers to this, you've won no one at the end. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And this is similar in our manual when we talk about like, there's kind of this common imagined situation. That's also a real situation where you're either in a bar or you're in your freshman dorm room and someone wants to talk to you about the faith and they're like, Hey, this problem and this problem and this problem. And what they're doing is you have this enormous defined territory that you're supposed to defend and they're allowed to just shoot little holes in it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And there's no way to win a soul that way. Yeah. I I think it's like, uh, yeah, it's like you have these conversations in the bar or whatever in the dorm and it's, they become frustrating because it's like your faith is being treated as like a list of like points you assent to, you know, and really it's like, 
you get to a point where you're like, no, this is like my whole reality. This is everything like my cause for existence, my reason for existing, you know, um, what, what you just said is very deep and correct. And it's kind of like though, that like somehow we're not even getting to the core issue when you're listing these objections, mm-hmm. right? The thing with like, if you're going to talk to someone about history, it's almost like you should stop the conversation at the beginning and say, can you give me just like three minutes to frame this, you know, or three minutes to like put forward the Christian hypothesis. And the Christian hypothesis is not that just the church is great and it's the bride of Christ and it's Christ in the world. You know, that's a hard hypothesis to defend. It's kind of true though. But like the real hypothesis is like, is love the creative force that both created everything, guides everything and interacts with you all the time? And then to make that question more difficult, why wasn't Mary born to Eve? Like, why is there history at all? Like, why didn't God have a problem and then correct the problem immediately? Why is there some sense in which God has been like revealing himself over time and revealed himself in the fullness of Christ? And then we're trying to grasp that and live up to that and figure that out. Like, why is that the mode that this is all taken? Right? That's the same question as saying, why is there salvation history? Why is there not just some static truth that was just like done, you know, and anyone who acts like they can answer that really quickly, which we've had some plus missionaries who think they can answer that really quickly <laughs> <laughs> has, has a confidence problem way too much. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, it, it's like St. Thomas hasn't settled this for all of humanity. So, <laughs> right. Yeah. And so it's just a difficult thing to grasp. But when you look at it that way, that is a very daring claim Mm -hmm. that the animating force behind everything is love, you know, and that there's been a corruption, right? But even that corruption has been corrected through love, right? Yeah. And then we can talk about all of history, right? I I think something we say, you know, um, in our manual and uh, it's like people have like little people have quibbles with the church or they have problems with the church and they'll tell you, I left the church because of this reason and like a doctrinal reason (laughs) or father so-and-so was doing or said this, you know, it's like you weren't, you got to wonder, was this person experiencing this kind of fundamental worldview frame, God's love, you know, that this like tiny problem was and not enough even like to shake the faith, view. you know? Yeah. Worldview isn't even. Yeah. Yeah. It's not even worldview frame. It's like relationship. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. the worldview frame is what we just talked about. And that is very important, but like, but actually, are you experiencing a relationship with God or not? Yeah. You know, because if you are, how's that, how's this little imperfection fit into that? You know? Yeah. Um, and I think that the, what we just expressed is not the way that we're saying, Hey, everybody who ever wants to do evangelization, go out there and, try to give two minute takes on history as a hypothesis of God's love. Mm-hmm. But like, I think that um, it's showing the problem of just trying to defend the history of the church as like an intractable problem that you have to, you have to go somewhere completely different with that. You know, I think it's like when we used to talk, when we talk in some boss training, we talk about how if you have a defined thing that you're defending, which could be Christianity, Catholicism, whatever. Right. Uh, 
you're not really having a conversation until the other person posits an alternative, right? If you're just having a conversation criticizing one, what's well, the only thing on the table? So you can criticize it all you want, but it's the only, it's the only theory to be accepted, right? Bishop Johnston, who was on our podcast a while ago, he was great in that he kind of summed it all up of like, well, if we're not doing this, meaning Catholicism, are you just waiting for death? Yeah. <laughs> He's like kind of throwing out the challenge. Like if, if it's not Catholicism, is it nihilism? You know? <laughs> yeah. Cause like we can compare those two things, nihilism versus Catholicism, the nothingness versus love is the animating force. Right. Yeah. And that's a real conversation, but this conversation of just critiquing either history or the church or the Catholicism as an idea isn't a real conversation yet. Right. Right. And that brings us to reframing the conversation around Israel-Palestine. Should I introduce this or you want to introduce this? I think I'll say it's obviously a very difficult problem to sort out. And, and it's frustrating when you hear people try to s- explain kind of the historical political causes. Right. And I think that most of what they're saying is wrong, you know, and... They're right to point out, well, you're hurting civilians this way, and Hamas is hurting civilians this way, and they're, this is unacceptable, and this is unacceptable. And they're inviting you to get fired up on one side or the other. Yeah. And, and as Americans, which maybe not our whole audience isn't American, but as an American, they're actually inviting you to join one side or the other militarily, which mm-hmm. we love to do, you know, which we shouldn't, by the way. <laughs> and we don't have the money to, nor do we have the ability to solve this problem. But I think that the right view on this you have to go not back in time, like 2000 years, you have to go back to an idea of like, what is the civilization each side is trying to build, you know, and why do they find each other unacceptable? Right. And I don't think it's an indigenous person problem or some international law problem or some violation of a UN charter problem or a, um, you know, whatever David and Goliath problem. I think it's a civilization problem. And it's kind of the clash between a Western civilization and Islamic civilization, mm-hmm. right? And yes, Israel is not a perfect Western civilization, and Hamas is not a perfect Islamic civilization. They're both very imperfect, but there's a fundamental value difference between those two ideas, Yeah. right? Um, so let's try, can, can we try to go at this without being real harsh on either side for a second, right? So Western civ... Is what we're all probably everyone's a part of who listens to this. And it's kind of this amazing civilization that has valued uh, the rights of the individual, which also means the rights of the minority. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's also been an incredibly productive civilization technologically and prosperity wise. Right. And we could go into more, we could talk about morality or whatever, but I would just take those two points that it both has a focus on individual rights and it's been very productive, right? Including the industrial revolution and all of that, that comes from that. Right. Mm -hmm. And Western civilization, although that values individual rights when it's backs against the wall or just even it's, it's not totally ideological about it. Like it will violate individual rights. Yeah. You know, and like it can come up with a just war theory and it can also drop an atomic bomb. It can also debate whether or not that was the right thing to do. Um, Western Civ is a, is kind of like being a Christian. It's kind of like, hey, 
we know what right and wrong is. We sin, but we can kind of, we know, and we know we're going to sin again, but we can kind of be critical of it. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think of that as mostly a good thing. Do you have anything to add to that? Right. There are imperfect actors, but yes, we acknowledge generally good, bad, right, wrong. And, you know, at its finest, there's no discarding of the individual. Right. Which also is a minority, right? Individuals like the ultimate minority, right? Mm -hmm. Now, we do know that, and also Western Civ is open to self-criticism in the sense that, like, when you do do something wrong, almost immediately people can start criticizing it. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas other civilizations, like if something's like a slaughter's happening, like when the Mongolians, when civilizations in history don't have this observation of individual rights, right? Like, or right, or right, they don't have rights for the out group, right? Like if Mongolians are going across and, you know, torching everything, right? They don't sit there and think about the tragedy of the people they're massacring. That's just not part of the value set there, right? Yeah. And that's normal. Like that Mongolian attitude is a more normal attitude of humanity than the Western attitude. Right. Mm-hmm. So the West differentiated itself by starting giving rights to the outgroup. Yeah. Which is ultimately the individual. Right. And that actually was productive. It bore fruit. Mm-hmm. Right. Now let's talk about for a second what is wrong with Western civilization that's kind of weird. <laughs> One thing that's wrong with Western civilization is it's gotten to the point that it celebrates sin. Right. It's not that it tolerates homosexual behavior. It kind of celebrates it. It kind of celebrates the rated R movie or the pornography or the Las Vegas type thing. Right. Mm -hmm. And the other really weird thing about Western civilization that's not positive is within Western civilization, we've birthed our own suicide cult Mm -hmm. where it's like we have birthed our own anti-civilization movement. You know, and it's not like some like other civilization is attacking us. It's literally, we tack ourselves from within to the point of ideologically trying to decon, you know, destroy Western civilization. Yeah. Right. So these are both big negatives. And I think the Islamic world sees this by the way, and, and Islamic civilization sees that as big negatives in the West, mm-hmm. you know, a certain self-hatred of itself and celebration of sin as big, really big problems. Also probably destruction of family. Mm-hmm. I think we've gotten to the point where the even though part of our civilization still values this big cohesive family that self-supports and is like the building block of society, a lot of it doesn't. You know, um, it's like the individual has been put over the family in a way, right? So both of, that's like historically abnormal, right? So part of what's interesting about Western Civ is because it's been so productive. Um, other civilizations have adopted a lot of it. Like if you look at Japanese civilization, it's grafted on a lot of Western stuff. You know what I mean? Same with Korea, same with other, even some of the Islamic civilizations, they get away from Islamic civilization and get like a Turkish, you know, ruler or a a secular ruler, even like an Assad type who's not necessarily a good guy, but it's like, they're trying to say, Hey, we don't want to be just Islamic civilization. We want to be a secular civilization and I think the only reason to do that is because they want the productivity, the technology, and all the good mm-hmm. things that come with being a Western civilization. Right. Right. Okay. So that's kind of like the influence of Western civilization, the problems with it, and the goodness of it. Yeah. Right. I, I think a lot of like the Western world has enjoyed like kind of stability for extended I think that has to do time. with the, like you said, I think you're right to point out that has to do with the productivity. It's like, yeah. 
if if your te- if your civilization produces technology at a greater rate and is more productive, you are militarily dominant. Yeah. Right. Um. Now, Islamic civilization has a very different attitude, and it's right to say that Islamic civilization has gone through different eras. But the problem with Islamic civilization is fundamentalism, you know, mm-hmm. and it's that. Unlike the West, which was largely influenced by Christianity and the Roman Empire and the Greeks and the Jews, but unlike the West, Islamic civilization is built on a man and a book from a time, mm-hmm. right? If you compare Islam to Christianity, the a huge striking difference is their book, their scripture is written by a man in a time period. Yes. So it's very consistent because it's one person's thought from one period of time. Mm-hmm. Whereas the Western like Christianity um, Bible is like 3000 years of scripture with many authors with many counter purposes. Like if I just said, Hey, I want you to learn about Christianity. Here's the book of Leviticus. Uh, learn what you can. You, you would yeah. have a very wrong idea of Christianity because the book of Leviticus has to be, you know, counterbalanced by the gospels and the epistles and the, you know, like the whole history of the Jewish people and how they didn't really live all everything that's in Leviticus. You know, Leviticus is the law book, by the way. So like we have histories and censuses and law books and myths, um, holy myths. Yeah. And three, um, three different perspectives on Christ or four different perspectives on Christ in the gospels. Right. And we have all this. It's very difficult to get fundamentalist about that. Yeah, without hitting an inconsistency. All the time. Yeah. Christian yeah. fundamentalism is kind of a joke. Like it, it has existed, but it's like not, it's not ever going to be powerful because it's such a rich interlocking thing that like you can't get that fundamentalist about it. But if you got one man's thought, one book, one time period, and that man happened to be a warrior king yes, and yes. lawgiver and ruler... Now yeah. you've got a dangerous, like yeah. fundamentalist problem. And 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 in addition, this this book and this man believe that all of society and government should be set up around, <laughs> um, you know, it promotes like g- government and religion being completely one. One, yeah, theocracy, yeah. right? Uh-huh. Yeah, your your founder of your religion is a theocrat, right? Mm-hmm. And this, I remember in the '90s, there was all this talk about liberal Islam. This is before 9-11. And liberal Islam, sure, but kind of like really liberal Christianity, it isn't, it doesn't self-perpetuate. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And even if you get like some parents who are very liberal Islam, it, there's no telling that one of their kids won't just like read the Quran and take it <laughs> fundamentally, you know? Yeah. And we've seen this over and over again to the point that it's not like, oh, hey, there's a handful of Islamic fundamentalists. It's like, actually, there's a whole Taliban regime. There's a whole ISIS regime. There's a whole, you know, political parties in, you know, Syria and in uh, Egypt and Hamas. And like, there's there's tons and tons of Islamic fundamentalists who actually they can just literally just raise army after army of them. Yeah. And that's just a small even if you say that's point one percent. Well, there's a lot more people funding them and there's a lot more people who are sympathetic and, and they get elected <laughs> and they get elected literally yeah. in democracies. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's an interesting thing about the West, too, is that using the Western values, you can subvert the West mm-hmm. like using you can subvert democracy with democracy. That's kind of what Hitler right. did. Right. Um, so this is all kind of interesting. And I, I think people who object to what I'm saying would probably object that I'm 
too rosy on the West. And it's like, well, there's no careful way of making these arguments. We're talking yeah. about civilizations. You know, there's no like scientific standard you can hold them to. You know, well, I, I think the important thing is like um, a lot of people are kind of trying to break this conflict down in the way of like who was trying to get what from whom and whatever. But it's all with uh, assuming the lens of like, well, we would all want Western democracy, <laughs> right. you know, um, right. and and that doesn't actually explain the conflict or or help you understand truly, because it, there's just a fundamental different view that that, you know, Hamas I, is working with. Yeah, I had this argument uh, around 2010 with someone who had mm -hmm. worked a lot in the Middle East. And mm -hmm. I said, look, I think that they're very religiously motivated that they actually don't want Western democracy. And the person who'd worked there and worked in mm -hmm. politics there said, you're wrong. The youth really want it. And then in like 2012, I believe, was the Arab Spring movement when like this mass movement of youth across the Middle East start promoting Western values, like in mm -hmm. wanting reform. And I literally called that person and apologized and told them they were right. Yeah. And then within a few years, yeah, none of that came to become more Western and it became more Islamic and more yeah. fundamentalist. And then it's like I had to say, I told you you were right, but I think yeah. I might have been right, you know. And yeah, and the thing that turned my mind was I visited um, Israel. I visited Israel Palestine twice. Once in the um, really good period of like the '90s, before there was like an apartheid, before there mm -hmm. was walls and borders, there still were borders. I remember going through these checkpoints in the Palestinian-controlled areas, and it was really. I remember being with Europeans on this trip. Mm -hmm. And I was really sketched out because I get nervous on things. And like you're you're rolling up to these like checkpoints of people who aren't really wearing uniforms, holding AK-47s, <laughs> who yeah. are going to check out your car and let you pass through, you know, and there's no walls. There's very informal. Right. And I'm like, this is sketchy as hell. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. And the Europeans also is like, how racist are you to say this is sketchy? And I'm like, this is sketchy. <laughs> 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 but anyway, nothing happened. It went, it, nothing, yeah, yeah. It, we went through multiple checkpoints, nothing happened, you know? And, uh, I remember in that trip I had bought, I really am, I really have this like love for like Arab culture, you know? Uh, I was more going to Israel to see, well, I, it turns out that the most striking thing was the, um, Christian Holy Land sites, but, uh, I really wanted to really get my head around Bedouin culture and like Arab culture. Right. So I would always like, go into like the Muslim part of the old city of Jerusalem and things like that and go shopping and just do things to try to Is like, this because of Ben-Hur or no, it's not Ben-Hur. It's uh Lawrence of Arabia. Oh, Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah. That yeah. always got, that got me really interested. And I started reading uh -huh. more and more about like this idea of the desert and the Bedouin and it's very romantic. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and I think it's kind of true too. Like it is actually a really cool part of, it is a cool culture, you know? And so like, I remember at one point I bought something from this like kind of shop in this bazaar, right? Arab bazaar. And the guy wanted me to come back in the back of the shop for tea. And I was really worried that I'm going to get grifted as a foreigner. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like I'm going to get upsold something that I don't yeah. need. You know, I'm going to end up <laughs> owing this guy a hundred bucks for tea or something, you know, but like turns out, no, like it, he actually just wanted to talk to me because I'm an American. And he wanted to talk about the Palestinian Israel issue, right? And he sits me down and he starts talking about how it's not right that Israel is ruling this land. And I'm like, okay, good. All right. I go, but, but why? And I'm using like a very Western frame. I'm like, is it because, uh, they took it from you after the British left? 
or like, but, but like before Israel, it was British. So was that okay? And he's like, no, that was really wrong also. And I go, but before British, it wasn't Palestinian either. It was Ottoman empire. Right. And he's like, no, but that was good. And then I realized he wasn't about Palestinian self-determination. He wasn't about Palestinian rule. I go, why was the Ottoman empire good? Cause it's still domination by a foreign force. Right. Mm -hmm. And he goes, that was good because it was Islamic. And then that's when it started. The pieces started fitting. Like he doesn't feel like he's fully living his religion until he's within an Islamic regime. And this unfortunately is like a constitutive part of Islam. Yeah. That can't seem to be gotten out. Yeah. And there are these like secular rulers that arise and that we know their names. They're like Assad, Saddam Mm -hmm. Hussein, Mm -hmm. Omar Gaddafi, you know, they're not people we like or or we're told we're not to like these people. But but these are people who try to create like a secular dictatorship in an Islamic realm, you know, but they fall to Islamic fundamentalism, assuming Mm -hmm. after we topple them usually. But (laughs) fortunately, but um, yeah, I don't know. It's just like a no win, you know? Yeah. The other thing that this has struck me as is like. Israel looks a little bit like the crusader kingdom from like 1100 AD, you know? Mm -hmm. And I don't know all the details here, but when you look at it on a map, it looks like a little finger of, of a kingdom in the middle East. They had military dominance because they had castles and mounted knights. And it lasted, I think like a hundred some years, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's like, it was never going to last. Like that was just not going to be a six. I, I feel like we're playing a game. If we were playing Sid Meier's civilization, the computer game, and mm-hmm. you had a little finger of territory in a completely hostile region, you'd be like, that part of my civilization is not going to last. <laughs> right, you know, like right. we can get through this conflict. We can go another 50 years. Yeah. But ultimately, I don't think Israel has a future there. And it yeah. doesn't have to do with right or wrong. And it's not me being mad at Israel or me loving Hamas. It's just like, I just don't see it as a winning strategy. Yeah. I I think um another question in my mind that I feel like isn't talked about um it's like there's the clash of civilizations, you know, um and is this part of Israel being the chosen people and there there's like a spiritual Oh, a theodrama aspect. Yeah, like that that's being worked out because I, I feel like it doesn't. Um, I, I was really moved by um, a thing that J.D. Flynn wrote that he couldn't really give, you know, a take on this and that we had to just like pray for peace beyond understanding because there's not like a political I don't, or I don't JD Flynn's idea of peace beyond understanding is exactly what I think is necessary too but I think of it not because it's a theodrama but because there's two intractable problems here yeah. and there's no future He didn't say that it was because it's a theodrama I right. am adding that layer I um, agree Yeah mm-hmm. Well the second time I went to Israel I went with a bunch of evangelical Protestants led by a group of Jews for Jesus uh-huh. and they definitely <laughs> viewed Israel as a uh, theodrama Mm-hmm. You know, and I don't yeah. know that I buy that either because you start seeing that some of the most religious Jews don't support, are not Zionists. Are not Zion, yeah. You know, and I just don't know. I, I think the, I mean, like to me as a Christian, I'm like, well, it could be theodrama, and if Israel falls and Christ comes back, that'll prove it to me. 
But if Israel falls and Christ does not come back, I'm going to think this was not theodrama. I'm going to think this was just a, kind of a civilization trying to create a little like fortress. Yeah, I mean, I place. guess I, I partly mean just persecution of the Jews. Right. And and the wider anti-Semitism that, again, going back to the mindset of the 90s is shocking to me today because I thought we right. were done with that, you know? <laughs> Let's um, talk about that because I yeah. mentioned that to someone and they rightly said, well, some people think any criticism of Israel is anti-Semitism. I'm like, oh, no, that's not what it's clear to me that some people are not getting the same news feed I'm getting. Yeah. Right. So tell people what you've seen as like the rise in anti-Semitism. Um, I, I think my main. Uh, so before before the Hamas attack i i was reading articles of uh young uh kind of jewish people realizing they don't have a home in academia anymore <laughs> um professors being um not advancing maybe because they're supportive of the zionist movement but um young people moving were moving to israel from the states because they thought they could kind of like live better and more safely as jews and um so it seems like a lot of anti-Zionism has been kind of cropping up on college campuses, but with very hateful language about the Jews, you know, not just like, hey, we don't believe in this project for this and this and this reason, but more just hatred against the Jews. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. let's say even beyond that kind of like qualitative take, uh, there was the chanting of gas to Jews in the movie theaters. Oh, yes. Sorry. Right. So that that was before. And then just confirmation of this is um, the the, you know, people um, kind of. Uh, supporting. The attack, not just like saying, well, this is, you know, in this context, but there is a kind of uh, celebration. There was that um, graphic made of like the. Um, Hamas soldier flying in, you know, what's it called? The hang glider uh, soldier, which, you know, killed a bunch of Jewish civilians. Um, and then soon after the, the attack, there were all these rallies in support of Palestine all around the world. And people were chanting things like gas the Jews and kill the Jews at these rallies. And these are rallies in like New York City and Sydney and L.A. And, you know, so that 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 was a shock to me. Right. Yeah. I also saw this this video of like these students with yarmulkes sitting in like their college library and they'd lock the yeah. college library doors and people are pounding on the doors yelling yeah. like I think they're yelling free Palestine or something like but they're not yelling gas to Jews but you could tell they're trying to get in that library to get out yeah. those Jewish students and they yeah. had to evacuate those students out through tunnels well, out of that a, library. A Cornell a Cornell student was just arrested for tweeting that if he came across a Jew uh, he was going to kill or rape them in very graphic language, like more than that, you know. And yeah. somehow this anti-Semitism seems married to something we talked about earlier, which is this like suicide cult within Western culture. Mm -hmm. Right. Like it's not the conservatives who are trying to get to, you know, hurt the Jews. It's like, yeah, it's like a group of people who <laughs> are kind of for LGBTQ type stuff are yeah. the ones who are most you know, anti-Israel, which is so strange because, because the rest of their ideology, Islam. yeah, doesn't <laughs> fit so with against, Islam. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like they would be like very much inconsistent with Islamic civilization, 
but they're very anti-Israel. Yeah, I saw this uh, funny, this comedian did this like fake newscast that Justin Trudeau was telling Hamas if they didn't knock it off, they were going to add Hamas to the LGBTQ, <laughs> uh, whatever, add an H in there for Hamas. And that's great. Yeah. But I guess this, the thing that's disturbing to me is like, it's, it's almost like they're revealing that they're not actually for LGBTQ rights. What they're revealing is they're not actually for LGBTQ rights at all. They're just anti-Western. That's what they have in common with Hamas. Right. That's like the only, literally the only thing you could think of. <laughs> they're for burning yeah. it down. They're yeah. not really for LGBTQ rights. Because if you mm -hmm. burn it down and Hamas takes over, guess what? There are no LGBTQ rights. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, so why this rise in anti-Semitism is the question. Yeah. I have two ideas. And then there's the third, which would just be theodrama that, you know, something, theo something in the spiritual world the Jewish people have this issue. <laughs> yeah. And this is going to always be with us in a way. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that that's wrong. I also don't know that that's right. I just am open to that idea. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I think sometimes something that's undervalued is in the West is like, if you have a subpopulation of people who are not really bought into your culture and don't want to assimilate. Now, frankly, Jews in America largely have assimilated only assimilated. in certain what did I say? Assimilate. Assimilate. Simulate. What's... Simulation. Assimilation. Okay. Assimilation. All right. <laughs> so largely Jews in America do live normal American lives and serve in our military and are living as, you know, almost like as a melting pot. You know, I know a lot of people who married mm. Jewish people, right? Um, but the Hasidic Jews are an example of a group that has stayed very separate um, they have an allegiance to their group over the dominant group, like very pronouncedly. It's not clear that they would ever serve in the military to defend our country. And they sometimes do things as a subpopulation that favors themselves uh, at the expense of the whole. You know, um, an example of this. And I think, by the way, this has been true throughout history. And this explains a good amount of uh, anti-Semitism. Right. And it's not just anti-Semitism. It can be gypsies. It can be mm -hmm. um, any subpopulation that behaves this way would fit into this theory. Right. Um, in Orange County, New York, a group of Hasidic Jews have re um, located from Brooklyn into this and they found a little township. And if you look up the highest welfare rate of any place in America, it's this little township of Hasidic Jews because they figured out a way to exploit the system and to have one person own the apartment building and they all live in poverty and have all these kids and they're receiving all these welfare checks that support their uh community you know um and it's clearly not what welfare was for yeah you know what i mean it's not like these welfare yeah. laws were invented to support hasidic jewish communities like this it was like highly functional people <laughs> yeah they're not using it as a safety net they're using yeah. it in another way right yeah and it's also clear when you talk to the locals around there that uh when the first group of people come in and they want to like you know, buy a car from your car dealership or do whatever, it's fine. But as soon as you start realizing that they're kind of patronizing your business until they can figure out how to set up a rival business and take all business to there. Yeah. And they're moving to your community not to like help integrate into the economy, but to in a sense set up a parallel economy. Now you have hatred rising. Yeah. You know what I mean? And um I think that that's a logical thing. It's not really theological at all. It's just like, hey, look, we have a subgroup who came in who's self-dealing, and 
it kind of makes sense that there's a negative reaction. Yeah. Right. I, I also think that part of the explanation of what's happened is I think that the, the Jewish population in America misplayed their hand a little bit with um, two things. One, you could never like talk about Jews mm-hmm. as like a people in a way. Cause like um, Dave Chappelle has this bit where he's like, um, you see a group of black people, it's a gang. You see a group of Italians, it's a mafia. You see a group of Jews, like no comment. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, and I think that's because we're so afraid of being anti-Semitic that we can't actually talk about it. And I think that that ends up creating, that makes the real anti-Semites have more credibility because they're yeah. just naming something everyone else is afraid to say or something, yeah. you know? And I think related to that, this idea of the Holocaust Museum, like the Holocaust is, as far as I can see, the greatest genocide that in the modern world or maybe ever, right? And it's the genocide that used industrial means to create it. So that's why yeah. I'm giving full that's credit why. to the yeah. Holocaust being absolutely horrible. But yeah. the idea that it's the genocide and there aren't other genocides happening that we're ignoring is weird. Yeah. And it's weird that when they say never again, you, yeah. I thought that meant as you know, Christian, I thought that meant never again genocide. I didn't think it meant never again Jewish genocide, right? Yeah. But when they won't speak out against other genocides, like the Rwandan one or what, and it feels like they're just protecting Jews against genocide, not the world against genocide, then it starts feeling like this doesn't seem like, why am I supporting this and not supporting some other anti-genocide movement? And I think that some of these like, like PR moves that have been made have backfired. What do you think? Yeah. I, I mean, I, th- I think it sounds like you're a thing that I've seen more clearly is like, um, I think we've created more racism in the U S by telling a bunch of people like, Hey, you're racist. And since you're white, you're not allowed to talk about it. <laughs> um, right. so, and, and I, I think it's like, yeah, that's actually has created a lot of racism. And so I, I think you're saying something like that. And I, I think that these could be like, partial explanations but i i think they're kind of incomplete because i just don't think that the young people yelling gas the jews are affected by the orange county jews you know in their I daily agree. life i agree i agree 100 and the orange county jews are a very different group of jews than the zionists i don't yeah. even know that they're zionists at all you know yeah um i don't know yeah so that's interesting. Yeah. I, yeah. you know, I, I tend to think that's the suicide cult though. Problem. Right. I don't, I don't know that it's theological or not. I don't know if this is right, but I, I don't know also that like, um, younger people are experiencing this other second thing of like not being able to speak badly about the Jews. I think, um, like, I, I think they don't, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if they, have all those taboos that maybe you and I or somebody older than us would feel like they have. Right. I don't know. And, and my evidence of this is when they don't understand world war two or what a Nazi is or call a Jewish person a Nazi, like it's like very confusing, you know? Right. Um, yeah. I do wonder though, if that them not having the taboo and us having the taboo still could be causal meaning like, mm-hmm. It's our generation who never accurately talked about it and felt repressed talking about it that ended up causing the next generation to be misled about mm. it or something like that or to overreact yeah. another way. Yeah. You know? 
But yeah, no, I think you're right. And I don't close the door that there is just like some mystical anti-Semitism that is yeah. a problem that there's like a God's chosen people type problem going yeah. on, you know? Yeah. You know, Pope Benedict had an interesting statement where he said that the covenant with the Jews still stands and um, it's not that Christianity wiped out that covenant. Right. Right. You know? Yes. Yes. And I, they still I, are God's people in a way and they mm-hmm. are still the ones who God made a covenant with, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, anyway, I hope that disturbed everyone. <laughs> okay. Boring net. The boring net by Laura Heeman. What do you got? Laura? All right. Not by Laura Heeman, but I, I, I read this Substack last week and I thought it was kind of a delightful take to entertain the author is Thomas Bevan, and I don't know how I ended up uh, subscribed to his Substack, but I did. Um, and I don't know who he is, but I enjoyed this. Um, he wrote a little uh, Substack called The End of the Extremely Online Era. And in this, he is making a prediction that just like the Berlin Wall seemed solid and permanent during 1988. Um, it's going to fall. The internet will fall. Um, and I think he doesn't mean the whole internet, the, um, you know, email, et cetera, all, all the means of communications and logistical necessities, uh, will, will continue to stand and develop and improve, et cetera. Um, but his take was, uh, that the internet as it exists today is just boring and we're all looking for something that is no longer there. Can I try to say what used to be there? Because sure, I don't think like if you're young, you don't really realize how interesting the internet used to be. Yeah. <laughs> right? It used to be that some weirdo who was like, like collecting, um, you know, Fabergé eggs would write these, like have this homage site to Fabergé eggs and write these long articles. Right. And whenever you search anything, sites like that were popping up everywhere. Like these, like, like interesting nook, like the rabbit, the rabbit hole is what we're talking about. Like when we talk about like yeah. going down the rabbit hole, like there were just tons of rabbit holes on the internet. Right. Yeah. And now if you wanted to start a Fabergé egg site, the likelihood that you're going to hit anywhere on that search engine on the first page is almost zero. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You'd have to have tons of traffic of like Fabergé egg lovers before you became notable enough to even come up in Google. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, being on the second page is like not existing, (laughs) right? So the problem is that between misinformation, SEO, search engine optimization, Mm -hmm. like people with agendas paying for slots, between Google already just biasing results and controlling results, and between the paid advertisers at the top... They're the, the, the cool rabbit holes are, have, are gone. Yeah. Is my mind. And there, people aren't even producing them because they know there's no hope that their like website would get hit like that would, would like be good. Yeah. And I think one of the exciting things about, you know, the internet, uh, is like being able to connect and get this information that was not existent in your local community or, you know, uh, connecting with a, you know, three other people in the world that have this bizarre hobby that you have is like amazing. (laughs) Um, and yeah. Like I remember this like movie from when I was a kid that no one else seems to remember called return to Oz. 
Right. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then like, I wanted to know more about that movie and I like searched it and I found this like archaic website that was a homage to the movie <laughs> Return to Oz. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And like, that's awesome. That's what the yeah. internet should be. I connect with the guy who loved that movie like I did so much, even more than me, that he built the website to it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that is kind of just, it's become stupid. And now like, like this whole Palestinian Israel thing is like a study in like weird information. Like it's yeah. like, how do you take every one of these articles and try to back out some truth when you know the person giving it to you doesn't feel motivated by truth? Yeah. And I think that one of Thomas Bevins's points also is just like, you know, it's like we're like worried about how AI is going to take over. But AI is enhancing one thing about the Internet, and that is the fake. <laughs> um, and that is tiresome and boring. And, you know, so I yeah, I think that's an interesting um, point. Yeah, Anyone who's tried to look up ranking articles like what's the best water softener or like whatever, or tried to look up instructional articles has been killed by AI. Yeah. You know what I mean? And yeah. long before chat GPT, it's even worse AI than chat GPT. It's just like, <laughs> it's like you, they had some program that crawled Amazon, took the top 10 rated, whatever, and then had some voiceover of like why it was so great. And it's so yeah. useless. It's such a useless. Yeah. It makes, it yeah. makes the internet useless and boring and, and the internet will die as a result <laughs> due to lack of authenticity and lack of yeah. interestingness. Yeah. I, I think the um, maybe the counterpoint is that the Internet is existing kind of like a slot machine, you know, um, like you're hoping to hit. You're hoping to get that. Um, I don't think that's a counterpoint because like the Internet's always been a slot machine. It was a slot yeah. machine that hit a lot. And and now it's a slot machine that so rarely hits you're losing. You don't want to pull the arm anymore. Right. Yeah. And I found that like Facebook is Facebook as Facebook has gotten really, really boring. Like Facebook as a way to keep up with my friends is not interesting. No, Facebook as a place where, um, groups gather like the ice cream maker collector forum of Uh white mountain on Facebook (laughs) is a great little place. Right. I love that place. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, and yeah, different, like I I've collected garden tractors for a minute. Like you find all the garden tractor enthusiasts on Facebook. But the, the problem though is Facebook isn't very good because garden tractor collectors would collect, would be on a forum, like a proper forum and on Facebook and the proper forum is more interesting and in a sense, like more mature because the conversations yeah. at Facebook, you keep having the same conversation over and over again. Cause somebody just asks, Hey, I bought my first garden tractor. What happens when this happens? Then we all talk yeah. about it. Whereas like in yeah. the other forum, you search those conversations and there you get a lot deeper on a real forum. You know? Well, face, Facebook actually prevents you from getting deep by um, the way it's designed. It's designed to keep you on Facebook, right? So now it's like Facebook, Instagram, YouTube all now have gone to this model of like shorts or reels or whatever, which they put at the top. And you're like, oh, let me look up this thing on Facebook or YouTube. And you're like, ooh, click. And then all of a sudden you've, you know, watched, you know, Twenty of these like short, tiny videos, and you're like, "What happened here?" Um, so, and the forum doesn't, you know, the online forums don't typically have that problem. But so, the question I'd like to hear answered is, why is are we as Catholics not learning from this? Because, like, <laughs> there's so many like things we've learned about almost like human engineering, right? Like, like with food, it's like 
put salt, fat, and sweet, that's like yeah. crack for humans. Like it's almost yeah. as addictive as crack. You know, salt, fat, sweet, like Doritos. Yeah. Or, you know, like whatever it is, right? Bacon, you know? Yeah. But then we've also learned all this other human like hacking where it's like, uh, we love gambling type things. Like we love like inconsistent yeah. payoffs, you know? There there's like a um Michael Easter wrote about the scarcity loop and he says that the human brain is kind of designed to instinctually feel like you're in scarcity. You don't have enough. Right. So it's like you got to hunt and go get more food and you get in this loop. The scarcity loop is the slot machine problem or whatever, where you have opportunity, unpredictable reward and quick repeatability, which Doritos has that with the more flavors they release. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I always yeah. try a flavor and I'm like, why didn't I just buy Cool Ranch or Nacho Cheese? Because Cool Ranch <laughs> and Nacho Cheese are so much better than all the other flavors. But my, yeah. my point though is like, um, as we keep like developing these human hacks, you know what I mean? These like, um, or like even information sometimes can be titillating. It's like, Ooh, now I know. And you're like, now you know something that's absolutely useless, but you know, and you get that little yeah. high, you know? It's like, why don't we use that for evangelization? <laughs> like, why when you walk out Manipulate of mass... people's basic instincts? Yeah, like, if we understand that this is what <laughs> motivates humans, why don't we, like, have you walk out of mass and, like, one Sunday you get, like, Doritos and a massive hug and social approval? <laughs> yeah. And the next Sunday you don't, but you want to come back because there might be the Doritos and hugs at the next one. Yeah. You know, my brother knew a priest that used to joke like, why didn't Jesus choose bacon for the Eucharist? You know, salt and fat. I'm not. Um. I'm not. Yeah. I, I, mean, this, I think this question's more valid than it sounds. Right. Like <laughs> if you know what gets humans going, why aren't we? Uh, why don't we have a research department in the Catholic Church? Like a curious. I think it's because we're, we're trying. We're trying not to give people Doritos. We're trying to give people the real food the sustenance <laughs> we're, we're trying to like give the real thing right. which you have to work hard for you so know a, not the factory <sighs> bread but the beautiful like artisans this is kind of true okay but it's also true that if you created the vitamin with the very best you know you know focused thing that people need you put it in a sweet gummy <laughs> You know, I mean, you don't like ignore that sweet gummies are attractive, you know, like just because you're doing the good core. You, yeah. It's also the sweet gummy. You know, don't get Ryan started about sweet gummies. Right. Well, there's also this issue like, why do we have pizza at like young adult events? I mean, it's part of this. It's not like, like we're like, oh, but you know what? Someone I know, I won't reveal who they are. So Simple House has this like book club, right? And our mm -hmm. book club serves dinner welcomes families and it's fairly awesome right but it's as easy as you could ever be if you say hey i didn't read the book we're like hey please come anyway it's fellowship right mm -hmm. um book club's awesome we essentially almost i don't want to say we build bribes into it but we're going to read like jp2's encyclical but we're also going to have a great dinner and the kids are going to play outside and it's gonna be awesome right yeah i know this other person who took a very hard book uh introduction to christianity made a weekly book club, offered no refreshments, told everyone to bring their water bottle. And they read chapters out of this introduction to Christianity. Very well attended book club. Very mm -hmm. successful. I'm like beside myself. I'm like, 
I have all these bribes in my book club. (laughs) 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 And you're succeeding just with introduction to Christianity, you know. An Uh, amazing and very difficult book to work through. Right. And you're offering people nothing except the meat, you know, and very deliberately so. And it's just, it was very edifying to see that succeed. Yeah. Um, Okay. All right. Moving on. The last topic. Candor versus Bishop speak. All right. My gut is that we are having a problem of lack of candor, you Mm -hmm. know, and it's not like a crisis. I'm not trying to raise an alarm bell, but like, like even on our podcast, like there's people who I want to bring on our podcast who, um, I feel constrained. Yeah. And they, I don't, I think they don't even think of it as constrained. They think of it as like saying the right things. Yeah. You know, um, they're like, uh, they won't, they'll only want to say very positive, good things. Like an example of this in my own life would be like, I know of a situation in a church ministry where someone's in charge who has burned a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Right. And I know them because I'm just personal friends with the people that got burned. Right. Yeah. But none of those people will speak bad about that person or bad about the ministry, even though you got to figure out if somebody's ahead of a ministry burning everyone, it can't be having good spiritual. I don't, I don't trust that that person's having a great spiritual director or whatever, you know? So it's like, there's something where it's like, there's something wrong here. You yeah. know, like there's enough evidence that are saying wrong here, but well, no one will say there's anything wrong because that's either they feel like it's gossip or why speak badly or, or shouldn't we always, should, and they even like speak highly of it even after they get burned. And it's just weird. You know, yeah. it's like, you're not speaking with candor. Yeah. You know? And I call this bishop speak because it's like, if you're going to talk about like the conservative wing of the church and the liberal wing of the church, you're only going to say positive things about each one. What are you doing? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, are you pastoring? I don't know. I mean, like, I kind of think you're pastoring because you're kind of helping the conservative see the good and the liberal and you're helping the liberal see the good and the conservative, but you're kind of not like, you're not doing what the scripture does, right? Like if you read Paul's epistles, He's not doing that. It's like, you guys are messing up over here. Right. And like, <laughs> we, we sacrificed a lot for you. And what are you doing? <laughs> right. <laughs> He's like, and I'm glad I baptized none of you. So none of you could say you're of the party of Paul, yeah. you know, and Quit it's like messing around. It's like, yeah. damn. Or yeah. like, or like you read the book of revelations. There's the first part. It talks about like the seven churches and it says like two bad things, one good thing about each church. And when it mm-hmm. t- does this, it's like, burn you know but it's like it's also like good because you're learning a lot you know you're you're getting a lot of spiritual fruit from this you know Mm -hmm. and you hope it's you don't think it's really being done out of hatred yeah right and when you the evidence we have of the apostles is that they were uh self-critical like in a candid way and i say that because like how do we know that uh saint peter denied christ three times because saint Saint peter Peter, told us yeah, he must have been preaching on it all the time because, yeah. like, it's a very well-known fact. He denied Christ trips. Why do we know that Saint Peter at like um, uh, the Transfiguration didn't know what he was saying and said, "Hey, should we build you three houses or what?" You know, it's because like the guys who were at the Transfiguration thought that was a worthy thing to relate, yeah. and it yeah. doesn't put everyone in a great light. But it, but it's very good for us. I feel like we're edified by that story, seeing a weakness in the great saint and Pope St. Peter. Right. And you also see St. Paul even has this point where he corrects St. Peter where he's like, and then I had to tell St. Peter that he was eating with the men of St. James and he was like wrong publicly. Right. 
And he didn't only do that in the moment. He didn't do that in private. He actually wrote it in an encyclical. Yeah. So it's like St. Peter must not have been thin skinned. Yeah. Period. Right. And he was very open about like his own problems. He's also the very first Pope in the, you know, the rock on which he built the church. Right. So it's like, I don't see that, you know, in the way our church leaders speak. Mm hmm. I, I, I guess I was thinking about this kind of um, like there is um, a thing that can happen when, um, you know, wives get together and they all start trashing their husbands and it's like ugly and it's bad. <laughs> and um, yeah, and, and, and it's, it doesn't make for happiness, you know, in a relationship. But there's another a different thing when you find out, you know, a couple that you think is great. When you find out, you know, when they reveal like, oh, yes, we've had this struggle, too, you know, and you feel less alone and you can get wisdom maybe from a person that's also dealt with a similar problem and it gives you perspective and all that, you know, and that's 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 good. But it might require you to say my husband did this boneheaded thing. <laughs> um, I, I'm torn, I, you know, because like. Clearly, the examples we get from Scripture are public. They're not like one-on-ones. Yeah. You know what I mean? They're written in Scripture. Yeah. Um, and I'm torn because like, if you see like a football team, right, and the coach after the game gives a press conference, they do coach speak where they're like, you know, the receivers are out there yeah. scoring points and catching balls like they're supposed to. Always wish they could catch more, but they're doing great. Yeah, 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 yeah. Quarterback's doing his best. Smart guy, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. But you got to figure that if a football team's going to be competitive at all, that's he, not behind that's the That's not the internal dialogue <laughs> of that football team. They're like, yeah. we have to be better. This is the fault. You're not going to be starting anymore if you keep this up or like yeah. whatever. They've got to like really think about critically yeah. about themselves, right? Yeah. And it appears to me that like in scripture that the church thought critically about itself quite publicly. Yeah. You know, and I feel like right now, like I've even been in diocesan meetings before. I'm always a funny, I love my role by the way, and never go work for the diocese unless you're independently wealthy or retired, (laughs) which is about the same thing. Cause then you can quit and walk out at any moment and you'll never have to carry water that you don't want to carry. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Like I've been in these meetings where, I'm always like, I'm this weird role because I'm like in this like parachurch organization called Simple House and I happen to be there, you know, but it's like, I have to say like, here's a reality, like, like an example was like, um, there's a bunch of turmoil in Catholic schools right now. We have these long established Catholic schools. I'll call them good in their own way, but they're wanting in ways too. And then we have these new established Catholic schools that are literally being established because the older schools aren't providing what these people want, mm-hmm. right? These are not the same type of institutions. You know, the energy in them is not the same. The purpose, the founding purpose has different energy, blah, blah, blah. Right. But then when we go into a Dawson meeting and we, we pretend they're all the same and I'm, and I have to somehow like, in order to make a point, I have to be like, all right, so you know how these schools are a little bit different than these schools. And, and then I have to like somehow explain the difference. And it's like, everyone in the meeting knows there's a difference. Everyone in the meeting sees that there's a different energy here, but they can't say it out loud. And I have to somehow like articulate it. And after, and and I feel like while I articulate it, they've all got their guns where they've got their hand on their holster. Right. Right. Cause like if I insult the existing schools or overly Trump at one or demonize one or whatever, I have to somehow figure out a way to articulate a difference so we can have a productive conversation without misstepping. 
Yeah. You know? <laughs> this is like lack of candor to the point of dysfunction. Yeah. I, I think maybe there's like two things. What you're describing is kind of political. I think, you know, um, you can't take a political misstep. Um, with the, with the thing I was trying to say about spouses, like I, I, I'm trying to agree with you because I think the candor is ultimately more helpful and, and formative, you know, when, when people can communicate, like we've had this problem, this is how we got through it, you know? Um, but I, I think there's like, um, also a problem when it becomes like you're murdering <laughs> your spouse in your heart. Right. And I think maybe we, I don't know if, if you think this, but maybe we are scared of kind of overstepping on that side sometimes and don't you're right like if you're gonna critique or speak candidly it cannot be with murder in your heart because that mm -hmm. is the problem it's not like yeah like i've talked to some new schools that founded and god bless them for founding but they'll like sometimes justify their existence by demonizing an existing school and it's like if that's why you're justifying your existence you're off you know like yeah. you are spiritually off you're not you know you've got a problem right um so there's this trickiness to it, but I feel like that's resolving that trickiness by not being candid is a problem too. And I don't know exactly where to draw the line on that. That's just requires, um, you know, that that's, and that like, that's why we need prayer to gain like purity of heart, you know, <laughs> and, and continue to grow in virtue and, and, and your relationship with Jesus, because like, we're going to fail. <laughs> um, I remember, I, I won't use a particular example, but imagine there were a couple of spiritual directors, right? Mm -hmm. And popular ones in your diocese, right? And say you had reason, you knew one was burning people, you know, or giving bad advice or messing people up, right? Yeah. And then you have people come and they go, hey, you know, I'm thinking about going to this popular spiritual director. Yeah. So one approach is to say, well, you know who I really recommend? You recommend somebody else. Yeah. And you won't say anything negative about that guy, but you'll recommend somebody else. That's a way to handle that problem. That's not the way St. Paul handled that problem. I, I think that problem is, I think, I think that's wrong. And I, I, I've been told not to speak too publicly about, um, oh gosh. See, now, about, now I'm, I'm, about a certain religious group. About a certain religious that, order. That you think is off track. <laughs> that I think is off track. And I, I've been and told. And it's like, that, why not speak publicly about yeah, it? Yeah. And I, I think I, I. I have to, and I've sort of refined the criticism in my mind to say, you know, I think there's this, this, and this problem. And if they were able to make this fix, I would feel more comfortable about people joining this order, you know? And, um, but, but yeah, but I, I feel like it, it needs the warning and like, if, but also if like, I, how can that group get any better without that warning? Right. Yes. You know, and yes. how, how can this and, and just imagine that you stepped into this, field of minds and someone knew they were there and didn't tell you, you know, and right. And I, I, I had, I was like very chastised by this, uh, thing that happened, uh, one time where I was kind of like got into church gossip talk maybe with like another person where someone was like, Oh yeah, well, you know, like, cause this priest so-and-so had this scandal and oh yeah. And this and this and scandal, scandal. And this person who, um, is a convert and is like kind of just less has been less around church hierarchy was like, you know, all of that, like the church knows all of that. 
and we're just sitting around, you know, and I was like, yeah, <laughs> you're right. Like she doing. was a hundred percent right, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, it's like, I, I maybe couldn't do anything specific about it personally, but she was right to be scandalized that just kind of this crap floating around in the church and we sit around, you know? <laughs> well, I remember um, one time we were in this discussion and somebody cited, quoted someone who we knew should not be given spiritual authority and you mm. couldn't help yourself. And you, you blurted out that this person, I'll, I'll put it more politely, should not be given any spiritual authority. Right? Uh-huh. And you were right. Like, I mean, I was sitting there, I was like, she's right. <laughs> you know, but, but like you said it out loud and it was such a faux pas. Hey, are you talking about a retreat one time? I don't remember where. I don't remember the okay. setting where the conversation happened. But you said it, and it was like such a faux pas that I remember you saying you had to go to confession for it many times. And I'm still not <laughs> sure that it was wrong. I'm not sure there was any okay. sin involved. It was like that person should not be listened to, right? And you you put it worse, but I I put it a lot worse. And I think the thing I said was wrong because it was a thing between God and that person that I couldn't know. But the idea that this person should not be listened to, I 100% stand by it and believe it more strongly now than I did then. (laughs) And that type of speaking up is necessary. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And the fact that you felt bad about it and that you still know what conversation we're referring to 10 years later is a sign that it's rare and that it's difficult and that yeah. like somehow we're as a church not speaking candidly enough. Yeah. And it's like, if you read like, like the Didache is one of my favorite documents. So if you haven't ever read the Didache, it's like 10 pages. It's from like the first century. It might be older than some scripture. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's like this, um, it's called the teaching of the 12 apostles. And it's just this kind of crazy little document. And about half of it, in my memory of these like just 10 pages or whatever, about half of it is about sorting out false prophets. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. And that's also true when you read St. Paul, there's a good amount about talking about even Christ warning us about the wolves and sheep's clothing. And my problem is that we meet a wolf and we don't call it out. Yeah. We, we politely say, well, yeah, great ministry. Keep going. You know what I mean? And then like the most we'll do is just try to take someone and try to push them towards a different ministry as opposed to say, hey, man, this is corrupt. And frankly, what's weird about this is like the person who is off track keeps getting success and keeps being allowed yeah. to operate in a way that um, is is not good for them. You know what I mean? It's going to hurt them knowing God because like they're not going to get the humiliation of like, hey, right, I messed right, up. Right, I burned right. people. I need to repent. You know, and the other thing that's weird is like I've seen people fired in the church for things that are like statements taken out of context that maybe they were flirty or something like that. Right. And I've seen people literally like ruin people's careers <laughs> and not get put out of the church. Yeah. You know it's like, I, mean? I, I, I think it's like, are we managing a PR thing or I don't know. Yeah. yeah, It's like PR at the expense of truth or something, but yeah. 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 I don't know. I, and, you know, at the end of the day, I, I do think a lot of people are afraid of their audience and they're afraid of giving their audience bullets. Like if we start shooting bullets, they'll shoot at me, too. No, I, I think they're afraid that like it's like they're protecting they're trying to protect the church and they don't trust their audience to receive, you know, complete truthful info and not use it against them. I, by the way, am worried that they're right. 
and that's mm-hmm. why we're we're talking about this. And my gut is towards candor and away from what I call bishop speak. Yeah, my gut is for candor, but I'm not sure I'm right. You know, because yeah. like I think what you said is a good. I just know that it's not scriptural. Yeah, you know, and that's my that's my real terror is like it. My gut points the way same way scripture points. But what I see actually as the lived reality of the church is not that way. Yeah. And there's this tension here and I don't know what to do with it because I do see the point the church has and not doing it. So, yeah, I, I know we in our last recording, we talked about pop psychology and here I am going to bring us some pop psychology. Sweet, <laughs> sweet. No, I, I think there's an idea, you know, like a boundaries idea or whatever that you don't have to manage other people's reactions. Right. Like you act how you know and think is right, you know, or what you need to do or want to do. And, and the way the other person reacts is not your responsibility, I think is like a boundaries idea, but it is, that's a book. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's a limitation on that. I recently, there is a limitation to that, but yeah. Anyway. Anyway. Well, I like that. I I think we just leave that as the open question, but. I think that the evangelists who speak candidly are going to be the successful evangelists and the yeah. evangelists who say the right things aren't. Yeah. You know, and I, let me throw another context onto this for evangelization sake. If you have something that you have struggled with in your faith, that is often your evangelical edge, right? Yes. Like yes. For example, yes. if yeah. you see that homosexuality is wrong and condemned but then you've met nice homosexuals or have one in your family and you've had to also love them, mm-hmm. you know, you will, by being a true Christian there, discover things that make you very effective in evangelization that someone mm-hmm. who just goes to theology grad school will never have. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And this is also why we should be either hiring or just taking volunteers in our churches of older people who have struggled and come to these truths as opposed to the new theology grads. Sorry to take any jobs away from new theology grads, but like, cause I know yeah. there are no jobs for new theology grads that pay, but like, yeah. it's almost like I've been, I told a pastor recently, I'm like, look, you should hire this middle-aged guy just two days a week and he will get more done yeah. than this new college grad and give him the full salary. Cause you can't live on that salary anyway. Just give him the full salary to work two days a week, you know, and his evangelical edge will be so much better. Yeah. And someone who just knows the right answers has been reading the Catholic answers for him. Yeah. Let's leave it there. My toddler is home. So, Oh, I have a recommendation. This is not for your toddler though, Laura. I have to get my toddler at the door though. Okay. I'm going to give the recommendation while okay. Laura goes to the door. Okay. All right. There is a movie made in the eighties called Brazil. It is made by the guy who is famous from Monty Python fame who did the animation for Monty Python, which was like those cut out people that did weird things. Um, the book, the movie is rated R. So I don't like recommending rated R movies, but it's kind of a crazy movie about a dysutopia of bureaucracy and meaning that is had in crisis. One of the best scenes is when an HVAC repairman, uh, comes in, uh, to one of the government buildings through a zip line to, uh, solve, an HVAC problem because the official government agency cannot do it and he is an illegal HVAC repairman. Um, Anyway, God bless. Uh, Talk to you later and Laura says goodbye too. Thank you for listening to the Simpleton Podcast.